Hey, just a heads up. The episode you're about to listen to is about Scream 3, directed by Wes Craven and written by Aaron Kruger. It includes references to sexual violence, and our hosts have ranked this movie as spooky. Well, it's not really that spooky. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website, progressivelyhorrified.transistor.fm, for show notes, relevant links, and transcripts of each episode. After the spooky music, we will talk about the episode in full, so be forewarned, there will be spoilers. Now, let's get on with the show. Good evening, and welcome to Progressively Horrified, the show where we hold horror to standards it absolutely never agreed to. <laughs> Good evening, and welcome to Progressively Horrified, the podcast where we hold horror to progressive standards it never agreed to. Tonight, we're talking about the third and final chapter of the five-part trilogy, Scream 3. <laughs> I'm your host, Jeremy Whitley, and with me tonight, I have a panel of cinephiles and cinebites. First, they're here to invade your house and find queer content in all your favorite movies. My co-host and comic book writer, Ben Kahn. Ben, how are you tonight? Y'all, we've done a lot of movies for this podcast dedicated to horror, a genre all about surprising you and frightening you. In all the movies we've seen, nothing has both shocked me and unmoored me from my sense of reality than the Jay and Silent Bob cameo. Right? I screamed. Uh, I actually screamed. It might be the most insane thing I've ever seen in any film. And I just watched the French car banging movie. Yeah, I thought I was having a stroke. Get ready for my spiciest take on this movie. I think they should have been the killers. Uh, there you go. And we picked her up at the spooky crossroads of anime and sexy monster media. It's co-host and comics artist Emily Martin. Emily, how are you? I swear on all of the Pulitzer Prizes that I promise I will win <laughs> that I will give this movie the best chance that it deserves. It's a good thing Gail had some good lines because her haircut sure wasn't. It looked fine when her hair was up. That's the thing. Is it like they didn't test what it would look like it was down? And somebody who definitely wants to talk about Gail's haircut, I'm sure. Our special guest tonight, <laughs> one of the hosts of the Gotham Outsiders Batman Book Club, TJ Finnessy. TJ, how are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me back again. We love talking about Scream with you for sure. I'm so happy you're here, TJ. Yes. But yes, her haircut. I, like I said, I didn't rewatch this immediately before recording. So I did not have the visual of her haircut until you mentioned it. And then it was like PTSD. It just came right back. People are like, that's the true villain of uh, Scream 3. I would say the, the true villain of Scream 3 is uh, screenwriter Aaron Kruger, who uh, I'm going to be nice to the true villain of Scream 3 is Harvey Weinstein. The director of was Wes Craven still, so he's still there. But we lose Kevin Williamson, who wrote the first two, and we get Aaron Kruger instead. Kevin Williamson was too busy writing literally everything in the year 2000 uh, and, and couldn't fit Scream into his schedule right then. He, he did write an outline of the script, which they threw out. But at this time, Dawson's Creek, which he created, was premiered in 1998 and was oh, yeah. at its height at this point. The Faculty, which he wrote, came out in 1998. Halloween H2O came out in 1998. And he was directing Teaching, teaching Mrs. Tingle, which came out in 1999 while this movie was being made. So he was a little uh, busy. A little busy boy. The uh, Weinstein brothers decided 
they weren't going to wait and they were just going to hire some dude to write the script and give him a month to do it, even though he had never seen either of the Scream movies, to the point that Wes Craven had to come in and rewrite pieces of the script himself as they were making it. Well, Jeremy, I feel like that's a much more tasteful way of the way I would have phrased it. Because I would have said the real villain of Scream 3 is Columbine. Oh, yeah. The, ho- the horrible real-world tragedy that forced them to fucking rewrite the whole movie like a month before production was supposed to start and tone down all the violence to a really distractible degree. People keep not getting stabbed on screen in this movie because they didn't want this like visual violence and blood this close to the Columbine shooting, which makes... The movie confusing because you're never sure if anybody dying is red herring because nobody ever dies on screen. Wait. It's like yeah. they sort of move to stab somebody and then they're not there anymore. Yeah. That's well, so much so that when someone actually dies on screen, I was like, oh, that's fake. Then there is a fake one. And you're like, what? That didn't look fake. Really pisses me off because the movie went out of its way to have Gail check his pulse and be like, yep, nope, we are. Double mega confirming he is absolutely dead. Yeah, it's wild. Speaking of Gail, this movie does again star Courtney Cox. We have Nev Campbell back, even though apparently she was only available for two weeks because she also was filming everything in the year 2000. And it's Uh, noticeable. She does not reunite with the other characters until 50 minutes in and then spends like half an hour of act three just chilling in a police station. She's also not in the same room as the person who committed the murders until the confession scene. Courtney Cox and David Arquette are the real main characters of this movie. Leah Shriver is back for a brief period. Uh, Parker Posey is here. Patrick Dempsey is here. Lance Henriksen, Scott Foley, Roger Corman. And I, I have to stop somewhere because there's like a long list of people that we could include here. Not to mention Kevin Smith and Jason Mewes. Carrie, Carrie Fisher. Fisher as not Carrie Fisher. As someone I perpetually that, in her shadow. I think Fisher. you should agree, though, that the MVP of this movie, Parker fucking Posey. Oh, my God. Without question. Oh, my God. She's amazing. And all of her fashion is incredible. And she has the most distinct arc. Every scene that she and Courtney Cox are in together doing their Scooby-Doo-ass bullshit, I love. If this movie had just the two of them doing this, I would adore this movie. My favorite moment she has in this movie, it's early on when she's worried that she's the next one who's going to be killed. And Dewey has already like walked off the scene and she just like pouts over and then just throws herself into Patrick Warburton's arms. (laughs) (laughs) There's still like a section of the fandom. He was like, she could still be alive. And I totally get it just because she's so good. Listeners, so you know, uh, during this episode, we will be freely talking about spoilers from Scream 1 through 3, and there will be no spoilers at all for Scream 4 and 5. And well, I know it's just so Scream, parentheses, 2022, go fuck yourself, it's Scream 5. So the IMDb says, well, Sydney and her friends, mostly her friends, uh, visit the Hollywood set of Stab 3, the third film based on the Woods- Woodsboro murders. Another ghost face killer rises to terrorize them. And I think it's fair to say that this is the black sheep of the Scream franchise, right? Yeah. This is my second time watching it. And I will say I had more of a fun ride with it on the second time around. And I think I was a little more forgiving of some of its flaws. Yeah. One of my favorite aspects of the Scream franchise is the whodunit element and the mystery. Of the four that I've seen, this is definitely the least satisfying reveal for the mystery. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I went into this movie with the lowest of expectations because I had heard that people didn't like it and that it was sort of the black sheep or whatever, the pariah, whatever that means. Love that line. I don't even know what that means. Right. But I actually really enjoyed it. Yeah. I think this movie has a lot of the best like metatextual satire stuff in it. But also this movie has a real cabin in the woods problem of like setting up these jokes about things and then also just being that at the same time. Yeah, R.A.P. Like, Tyson. Yeah, they they play it out I and like they Tyson. make some great they make some great gags about stuff that happens in the movie. The fact that Jenny McCarthy's character is complaining about her character dying in the second scene she's in during the second scene that Jenny McCarthy's in where she dies is hilarious to me. Like that that bit yeah, I mean, from this that bit is great. Like super villain puns. I love the moment where Milton tells you, I'll give you final cut. And they says, I already have it. And then cuts his throat. <laughs> it's a great line, which is then immediately ruined because there is a distractingly lack of blood from getting your throat slit. I mean, it takes a bit, but it's not like the horror it's movie cut. It's a scream movie. I want blood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They fucking yeah. exploded a house. That was cool. <laughs> except for the hilariously bad effect of them jumping off the balcony and then just like green screen superimposed like, like fireball effect the yeah. fading out some stunt person did a real painful roll down that hill because that, that roll is very real but that's not I don't think this is a bad movie I don't think it's a bad screen movie I do agree that it's the black sheep just in general but like me personally like I put like two and three are kind of tied for me and two is kind of like up there for a lot of people. But I think three is really, really, really fun. Scream movies are like pizza. Even the worst ones are still pretty damn good. Yeah. Yes. Like yeah. I will take the worst Scream movie over so many of like the good films of other franchises. There, there are things in two that I don't love, but there's sort of intentional things. Whereas three, it is so clear that it's being rewritten throughout and it's being changed and they're having to make edits, both, you know, conceding to folks, but also because they have their lead actors only available for like two weeks to film this thing. And they have so many things changing on the fly that like there are a lot of logical holes in the movie, things that just don't make any sense and don't work. Like you were talking about the scene of the house blowing up. The house blows up as the guy is getting a fax which is coming in in a house where the electricity has been cut. Um, <laughs> it's like it's on the fourth line, Jeremy. No, it's you a have, line. have power to a fax. Fax has oh, yeah. have power. Ghostface <laughs> fucking Special communicating phone. to them through a fax machine, though. That's like the kind of self-referential humor that I think Scream 3 excels at. Like the, the movie itself being a disaster and the actual movie in the movie being a disaster. I thought it worked really well. And even like the cheesy parts that didn't make any sense were so self-parody. Like, that's why I thought it worked. I think this is it my works. favorite Scream movie. It, oh, works as the che- it works as the cheesiest one. A lot of people say it's the lightest one. But like, there's a lot of emotional stuff too. Like with Sydney and the scene specifically where she walks into her old house and bedroom in that on the set of the movie. Like, that's to me, that's so emotional. You know, all the stuff with her while she is very secluded. And I think that's, to me, a problem in the film. Like, her emotional journey in the film, I really like. Sydney does have a very clear character arc in this film. 
She starts isolated and locked up and ends the movie surrounded by friends and open to the world. Like, it is a clear journey, even if she spends most of it just sitting in a room by herself. I sympathize with her upset because they replaced the poster on her wall. It used to be Annie DeFranco, and then it became Creed. That fucked me up. Before, before we get into the soundtrack, we're talking about well, stuff that is heavy in this movie. I do want to talk about the one thing that makes watching this movie heavy and difficult in the year of our Lord, 2022. This is a movie produced by Miramax, which is the company of Harvey and Bob Weinstein, in which the central conflict that sort of drives this thing is this reveal of Sydney's mother's past that she used to be an actress and quit acting because she went to a director producer's house to go to a party and was subsequently abused and raped at this party. That is a real thing that Harvey Weinstein was doing while he was producing this movie in which that is part of the plot blows my fucking mind. I know they were like rewriting this as it was going on. Did this man read this script while this was being made and say, well, that doesn't sound at all like me or did, was he, oh man, it's just, it hurts my brain because it, it's so weird to watch now and be like, holy shit. Part of the reason this movie is fucked up in some of the ways it is, is because like Harvey Weinstein was pushing them to do it cheap and fast and being abusive to the people making the movie when literally the character in the movie has the motivations and issues of Harvey Weinstein that are not, we're not being discussed at least publicly at the point that this movie was made. And I don't know if the people making this movie knew about these things at the time. Wes Craven is, is beyond being asked at this point, but like, it's real weird to watch now. Yeah. I this was, movie real fucking meta. Yeah. Well, that's one of the reasons that I was into it. Cause I was like, wow, they really went there and they really talked about that too. Like I was not expecting them to get into that. I didn't even make the connection of Miramax and, and Weinstein. I mean, I knew that he was involved at some point, but I, you know, the Miramax thing just didn't click. So that fact and like that whole context is now a kind of even better. Carrie Fisher has a line where Carrie Fisher claims that Carrie Fisher only got the role of Princess Leia because she, Carrie Fisher, slept with George Lucas. Yeah. I don't know what the fuck to make of that joke. Yeah. 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 She, she, made, like, she made that joke a lot. Since uh, we're talking about the rewrites and the wine scenes in general, uh, I want to bring back up Kevin Williamson. I don't know if I mentioned this last time we recorded, but back in October, I got to chat with the Kevin Williamson for an hour via Zoom. It was pretty cool. I had some questions. I asked him about how gay Billy and Stu were supposed to be. Some Scream 4 questions. Someone else there asked him about Scream 3. And I'm sure this is something he's talked about elsewhere too, but he did mention the difficulty with, I think it was Harvey Weinstein specifically. There was some butting of heads there. I don't know more than that, but he said he did write like a 20 page like outline, like a draft of what he wanted Scream 3 to be. And they passed on it. Kevin, his draft ended up basically turning into Scream 4. The one thing that was different that I think is great is he said that the killer reveal of Scream 3 would have been like Sydney in a room and all these people are dead, all the victims. And just when she thinks she's got the killer, all of the dead victims get up and that you find out they're all in on it and we're all the killer. And apparently he took that idea and kind of turned it into the show the following with Kevin Bacon, which he wrote. Yeah. So Scream 3 originally. I 
turned into that. I like that. I really like the idea of that as a twist. But then you start thinking about it. It's like, wait, so nobody died? So this was all just a really <laughs> epic prank. Yeah, well, there's a point where I felt like the group of actors that were at the birthday party were all in on it because everybody was just so casual about everything. I really think Emily Mortimer should have been the killer. Well, apparently yeah. in the in one of the original drafts and up until they were filming the end of this movie, Emily Mortimer was supposed to be the second killer. No, no, uh, I don't want Emily Mortimer as the sidekick to fucking Roman's secret brother stuff. I want her as the main killer and being like, I am you, Sydney. I, I just think Emily Mortimer would have been creepy and awesome. Oh, yeah. I mean, like that would have made sense. And, you know, they telegraphed it hard, but they telegraphed everybody super hard. I agree with you, Ben. I think the Sydney actress would have made a much better killer if they leaned into the Me Too aspects of the film. I feel like they could have made her stand on her own as a killer at the end. We feel bad for her already. Like, I would have been like, yeah, kill them all, girl. Get them. Yeah, I feel like they started with this, oh, we have to change people's understanding of the backstory and then that informed their decision rather than trying to come up with i don't know an interesting motivation for the killer they started with this rule and i don't know i just wonder if it boxed them in a little bit the number of people who were supposed to be something at some point in this movie is pretty wild because at one point taya leone was going to be playing the parker posey character David Boreanaz was going to be playing Detective Kincaid. Wes Craven was supposed to be John Milton at one point. They went all over the place. Everybody and anybody who was anybody in like early 2000s was supposed to be in this. At one point, they had cast both Paul Walker and James Vanderbeek at different points as Tom, both of which I think would have been fantastic for that. that Either of those wouldn't have been better. Paul Walker and James Vanderbeek definitely would have been more memorable. Yeah. I mean, it would have been like more of a cameo thing, but yeah. Uh. So many people that could have been in this movie. So let's talk a little bit about what actually happens in this movie. Or I guess should we briefly talk about what almost happened before Columbine forced them to rewrite everything, which again, TJ, please correct me if I've gotten this wrong. I'm mostly getting this off of the Wikipedia part of the Scream 3 page. The original plot was that Matthew Lillard Stew had survived and was directing teenage ghost faces to like kill in his name and then they're like "Ooh, maybe we shouldn't have teenage killers right after columbine yeah i think matthew lillard is the first one that came out and said that like a few years back but i can't remember whose idea that was like if that was kevin williamson i for some reason i'm thinking it wasn't kevin williamson because he seems very much like what salutes do in the past so i don't know who that came from but yeah like that was totally a thing that was supposed to happen at some point so <laughs> we open in los angeles with cotton weary we have Schreiber. now a successful tv talk show host uh he's filmed a cameo in stab three but he is in LA traffic on the phone with his agent. He gets a, a call from somebody who doesn't identify themselves. Who's talking with a woman's voice. Who's pretending to be a fan of his because, you know, they just recognize his voice and it is revealed that it is another ghost face killer who says, you know, he is at Cotton's house and watching his girlfriend, a character to whom we have never been introduced from the shower, which is a thing they will talk about in the movie, in the movie, which they literally do at the beginning of this movie. She enters from the shower and proceeds to, you know, have a, a killer coming after her. Uh, this is also where it is introduced Perfect. that our killer in this one has not his usual voice machine, but a voice machine that can copy anybody's voice and um, make it work so it's you can sound like anybody, I, which is hard. I have thoughts of sci-fi. <laughs> 
magical. I have, yeah. yeah, I have thoughts about the voice changer. It's now practically a superpower, being able to imitate just anybody's, including just dead people. People that are dead, be- that died before cell phones were invented, you can get their voice from apparently the no lines they had in Amazon Aliens or whatever the fuck those movies were. And he's um, happy with it when he was doing it with Cotton's voice, which is like very attainable. He's, you know, on, on TV. I was like, oh, maybe he's remixed it somehow. He's using something where he can filter it through some kind of software. Uh, but then when he speaks to Sydney as her mom at one point in this movie, who has been dead since before the first movie, I was like, nope, I'm out on this one. I'm out on this idea is working. It, it doesn't make any sense. The movie has to be taken as a more campy version of itself just because I think the voice changer is one area that just stretches the disbelief past where the tone of one and two could have taken you. She discovers it and starts talking in different people's voices using it. One of whom is the actual killer. I don't know why he's been disguising his voice to sound like himself, but he has okay, his own voice so in the thing. That does bring up one point from a little later in the movie with Sarah's death, where she is getting a call from, quote, on the quotes, Roman, who is actually Ghostface. And she's talking to Roman, and then it turns into Ghostface. Do you think Roman was talking in his regular voice and then switched to Ghostface? Or did he still use his own voice on the voice changer to talk through? Was it just like double Roman voice? I, okay. I bet you double. On top of that, he's in the next room over already in a costume hanging on the rack talking to her. And she doesn't hear that there's somebody in the next room over talking to her. This scene only makes sense if there's two killers, which apparently like there's a scene that was cut right before this. Where, like, you can see that there is somebody else watching her as she goes into this trailer uh, that's supposed to be Roman, who is then making this call. And then the killer is supposed to be Emily Mortimer's character, which makes way more sense. Uh, yeah, both this, way more sense. Both this scene and the scene where, uh, where they're chasing Sid around the prop house and, mm-hmm. like, Ghostface just pops up everywhere and then is also under a blanket pretending to be her dead mom only makes sense if there's two people. <laughs> Or one yeah. PTSD. Yeah. I have to say, on the voice changer, I don't hate it, but it's like when you have Roger L. Jackson, who was just so good with the Ghostface voice, I just feel like it really took away some good stuff from him. Well, spawn. it bothered me, and then I figured out, oh, shit, Hollywood's probably been developing this so they don't have to pay voice actors. Um, <laughs> I mean, in the screen verse, sure. Cotton and his girlfriend get killed. It doesn't really matter. This was apparently Liev Schreiber's idea is to be the guy who was killed at the beginning of this movie. And also Liev Schreiber uh, required that he wear a tight uh, shirt instead of the uh, normal outfit that he was supposed to be wearing in this because he had been working out a lot. Well, good for him. God bless you, Liev Schreiber. Also, you can tell this movie takes place in 2000 because there's a fantastic moment of him having a cell phone in one hand and a car phone in the other. Yeah, well, that's that. Also, did you know that you could just circumvent L.A. traffic by running into people and driving around it? Also, I feel like it's important to note that while Ghostface is attacking Cotton's girlfriend, Ghostface has put on Creed music. But yeah, so Cotton Weary died. His show was called 100% Cotton. I thought that was a pretty good Amazing show title. Yeah. Were you guys sad for Cotton or were you like, all right, see ya? I was a little sad, but I was like, you know, this is a good send off for Cotton. Kind of what I expect from supporting characters who survive their first one. Like the way like Randy made it through the first one and then bit it in the second. I'm kind of like, yeah, this makes sense. You survived the last one. You're returning. That's already big danger. And look, if you're in the opening scene, like, 
ooh, we it scream like we fame you famously did Drew Barrymore in the first one, like time for your juicy big star kill and like in your opening scene. Yeah. After he Mr. Magoo's his way through number two and just like seems to be guilty of all the crimes throughout the movie until right. at the end he's like, No, I just wanted to talk to Diane Sawyer. <laughs> no, I die this because like I don't really see Cotton as becoming like Ooh, he has to join like the Dewey Gale Sydney gang. But I, I, yeah. I would have liked to see him have a bit more interesting of a death because usually the when you have like a sequel and you have the cold open kill, then there's like something about that first kill that's inventive or unusual that ups the stakes somehow. And I think this one, their intention on that was to use the voice changer thing. Jeff already said, I don't really buy the voice changer thing in this. It's definitely really- not as dramatic as Scream 2 knife going through Omar Epps ahead, like through the bathroom stall. From that point, we jump forward to, to follow up on Sydney where she's being filmed at a second location. <laughs> in, she's in seclusion somewhere in the, I guess, the Sierra Nevada mountains, somewhere in the wildernesses of California. Well, is she in the Sierra or is she in like the Tehachapi's? I don't know. They, they do not specify. They don't tell us where she's she in. is, along with not telling anybody else where she is. Uh, where in California. Yeah, but she works for a women's crisis hotline under an assumed name. And she's got security and fence alarms and possibly an electrified fence. I wasn't sure if that was supposed to be the case, but it seemed like it. Um, I'm sure she was out with her dog. And then she like closed the gate, which is made out of, I don't know, five pieces of wood. And then she like put in a code. And I'm like, dude, I can... I can go through that. Like, why is there a code for your pedestrian? They don't bring an automobile. I I guess. I mean, like, but it's for the pedestrian gate. It's not for the fucking, I don't understand it. I hope they can't jump. She learns about Cotton's murder through the TV. And that's basically all the interesting things we're going to see with her here. They just have to establish she's in the movie because she's not going to be for a while. Because we're instead going to go on to uh, Gail, who is doing entertainment reporter stuff. She's clearly broken up with Dewey and uh, her time on 60 minutes too did not work out. I don't know why that that's not called 61 minutes, but or 62 minutes, 62 minutes, 60 minutes too. I love that. Electric Oogaloo. Was 60 minutes too canceled or was Gail fired? Maybe she but gets does. canceled. I feel like Gail's, that's a subplot of like Scream 5, like Gail gets canceled, but Scream 6 writers, you're welcome. Definitely. <laughs> Definitely she did have happened. turf bangs in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> okay, so now we have the the intro of our first uh, real new character. Scott Weary's girlfriend is not a character. No, she's a butt. I'm sorry. We have Detective Mark Kincaid, who is terminally handsome, and so not handsome. Ben Stiller. He's a Patrick played Dempsey. by Patrick Dempsey. Oh, his partner. I wanted to be Ben Stiller. Yeah, like so they far. were. He could. They were been. like. He could very easily have been Ben Stiller. I'm pretty sure that dude was a double for Ben Stiller in multiple things. Like, there's a lot of implications that that dude's gonna die because it's supposed to only be one cop survives in these movies. Oh yeah, uh, but instead he just fucks off the movie. Yeah, and he's like, I gotta go be a double in Zoolander. <laughs> yeah, apparently, in like the original draft of the script, Patrick Dempsey was not showing up in the final scene. Both of the cops just disappear halfway through the movie and never show up again. And they decided that he needed to come back in this last scene. That was a smart decision. Yeah. Yeah, Jumping ahead a little bit, but I want to ask you all your opinion on the Sydney Mark Kincaid ship because it's been a big thing ever since Scream 3 of just obviously the movie was like, there's something there. And then he, he pops up at the end like, did you ship it? Do you think they were dating by the end? What do you think? 
I don't know. I think he's Sid, handsome and I want Sydney to be happy. Yeah. Like, I was dating him. Yeah. Like, I think yeah, she like definitely drinky. hit that. The detective McHandsome uh, comes to talk to Gail about the murder of Cotton and they go to the, yes. the set of Scream 3. Uh, it's working. not clear because Kincaid's like, hey, Gail, I have some questions. And then Gail's like, we're working together. <laughs> I swear yeah. I will help you on my Pulitzer Pires that I haven't won yet, but I will. Fantastic line. I love that. That's such yeah, a great Gail moment. I'm going to use that whenever it's like, are you sure? And I'm like, I swear on all of the awards that I plan to live in my life. I'm doubling down on a lot of things right now. Uh, and we find out that Dewey is working, not just working as a technical advisor on Stab 3 as somebody who is from Woodsboro and experienced all this stuff firsthand, but is also banging the woman playing Gail, who is played by Parker Posey here. Uh, his name is Jennifer. Jennifer Jolie. If I posted about this Jennifer Dewey Gale love triangle on Reddit R relationships, you think they'd figure out that it's the plot of Scream 3? Oh my god. Oh, hold on. Do you, do you really think they were banging Dewey and Jennifer? Yeah, they it is said. definitely implied. I get it. I know it was implied. I'm just like, I don't, I don't know. Dewey to me, I'm like, he's so pure and good. I'm like, I mean, I guess he's, he's a dude. So they probably were banging. But they probably had like one night where they were both drinking or like whatever, uh, and they had watched like beaches or something. And then he was getting really, really emotional about it. And Parker Posey was like, hey, this, this, uh, this he dismissed Gail so much. It was like Jennifer had just finished her uh, Gail costume test. Right. <laughs> yeah, it really seems like Jennifer is all about the like method acting. She really wants to get into Gail's head. And it seems like she would definitely yeah. have taken that to the point of, of sleeping with him. Yeah. The actors' names are Tyson Fox, Tom Prinz, Sarah <laughs> Darling, Angelina Tyler, Jennifer Jolie. And then we will have also the bodyguard played by Patrick Warburton, whose name is Stephen Stone. Was apparently at one point that character was supposed to be played by Stone Cold Steve Austin himself. Uh, and somehow it does oh. not seem that, that that name went away, even though Stone Cold does not appear in this movie. Yeah. Also, we have Jennifer, the Jennifer Jolie's fantastic real name, which definitely doesn't sound like the name of a 30 Rock character, Judy Jurgenstern. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> The, the actors all have this very meta conversation about who's going to die and when. And uh, we find out that there's all these rewrites on the Stab 3 script that, you know, nobody really knows what's going on. There's three different versions of the script. After this next death, we will find out that the killer is killing people in the order that they're dying in the movie. And then that'll be just fucking tossed out the window. We won't hear about that ever again. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, they make such a big deal out of that, and then it's immediately abandoned. I do think that it's funny is that when they talk about Dewey being like the technical advisor, and then they see the casting of Dewey in the movie, easily the most charismatic actor, and probably I think they said that Gale was the killer in the stab. Yes, but think. Jennifer's also freaking yeah, out yeah. because she's supposed to be the third character to die. I guess is a plot hole, or maybe it's a death fake out, or maybe Jennifer just didn't read to the end of the script yet that she got. Well, it kept being rewritten, apparently. True. <laughs> yeah, she says that she's supposed to be the third person to die. But then later when she is, is being killed, she says, but I'm supposed to be the killer in the movie. And she's like, which version? Yeah. I was digging around on the Scream Wikipedia page, like the Scream, the whole Wikipedia site. I forget what rabbit hole I was down, but I was looking at the Gail Weathers in Universe books. And I found out that supposedly somewhere it was confirmed that 
they canceled the entire stab three that we're watching get made. That never happens in universe. But Gail writes a book on what happened in Scream 3, and then they adapt that and make that into Stab 3. So the movie that we are watching get filmed never gets released in universe, which just was wild. Yeah, I mean, we'll we'll see Dewey's actor talking about that later, just before he bites it. He's ripping up the script and talking about how it's never getting made. The whole thing's been canceled. So Uh, you're telling me that the in-universe version of Stab 3 is even more goddamn meta than Scream 3. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's what, that's what I got from it. So you're telling me that's a movie within a movie within a movie. Yes. Now, do Jay and Silent Bob show up in that? Though? Again, if okay. it had the reveal, if fucking, like, ghost face masks come off and it's fucking Carrie Fisher and then Jay and Silent Bob show up with bloody knives, how amazing would that have been? I mean, might as well have been. At this exactly. Point. Maybe in Stab 3, it's Blunt Man and Chronic that show up. <laughs> like, I would have lost my... How amazing... You would Let's be honest. If Carrie Fisher had been revealed to have been Ghostface, we wouldn't have even given a fuck about, like, the motivation. We would have just been so happy to see Carrie Fisher be a crazy killer for the next, like, last 15 minutes of the movie. She like, would have eaten that up. Yeah. yeah. I loved it. Apparently, at one point, that part was also offered to a couple of other people, including Jamie Lee Curtis, who, you know, I, uh, for obvious reasons, was their original choice for that part. Uh, yeah. Interestingly, play. though, was still the Star Wars joke. Really? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't tell if you were serious. Glad, I don't know, Ben. You're really good at, like, leading me on. It's pretty great. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, it's okay. This is good dynamic. This is good comedy. <laughs> Yeah, it was their second choice. <laughs> yeah. They're like, well, we were going to make this Princess Leia joke, and we thought, I don't know, maybe Jamie Lee Curtis would do it. But then she said no, so we're like, well, what if we got actual Princess Leia? So we went with that instead. <laughs> I mean, stranger things have happened. I okay, guess. so let's move from this interesting scene into this not interesting scene, which is Sydney having a nightmare about her dead mother, because Sydney knows what's going on in the rest of the plot somehow, that this is all about her mom. It's, she imagines... That a ghost face breaks into her house and tries to kill her, and none of that actually happens. It's practically the film. Sydney Prescott B-roll footage. It yeah. just exists to be like, yup, Sydney's still in the movie. We don't have much of her, bud. We're going to try to piece it out for you. That's the weird thing is that so, never before has Scream gotten into, like, dream sequences and that kind of thing. Ben, do you want to tell your theory and I'll tell my theory? Well, I don't have a theory. I just have why the dream sequence is a major failing of this movie. Yes. Because it comes immediately after the Jay and Silent Bob cameo. So it's trying to shock us with the dead mom. And I'm like, no movie. I'm still thinking about Jay and Silent Bob. I'm going to need at least 10 minutes before I can take in any other detail about this movie you just showed me jay and silent bob you think you're fucking shocking me with dead mom fuck no i didn't know to expect the miramax cinematic universe at this point i'm still trying to process the jay and silent bob but this whole thing with the mom and the dream sequences is they had already established this was a movie and this is in hollywood and blah blah so 
I had this idea, and maybe this was in one of the original scripts or one of the original ideas, that they were going for this whole thing where everybody was, or at least multiple people were in on it, and it was a bunch of killers who were trying to create a meta movie around Sid on purpose. And so there were people, because there are special effects people, they even show and introduce the special effects guy that are all about like makeup and monster masks and things. So like if this movie has established that we can have a magical voice changing thing, then of course the makeup is good enough that they can have dead mom walking around and it's actually like her and not an actual dream sequence. So that's what I thought. I thought it was like a whole production. Uh, it would have been, been way too heavily well thought out. Yeah. Heavily that's made up Emily Mortimer would have been great. Yeah, like uh, yeah, Emily so, Mortimer or, or anybody like just hired, you know? As much of the whole movie is movie within movie, I almost kind of wish they'd leaned even harder on it. <laughs> yep. Meanwhile, Sarah, who is the ditzy blonde character who is, you know, supposed to die second, is called to the trailer by the director to go over some lines and some scenes. She has some questions. She's upset that her character dies in the second scene she's in. As I said, this is the second scene that character is in. There's a call on the office phone, which she answers. And at first it seems to be the director. And then it turns out that it's a ghost face. And then she tries to hide in the trailer. And then ghost face is already in one of the ghost face costumes in the trailer and chases her down and kills her. This might be established is very ridiculous if you stop and think about it, knowing who the killer is. Um, he was clearly calling her on his cell phone from inside the ghost face costume. No, he had to clone his own cell phone. Yeah. I mean, wait, I wait, guess so I, weird. I mean, yeah. But he the, thought ahead. He had metal detectors and bulletproof vests. That's where his budget went. But the other thing that I think is important about the scene is the script notes that Sarah has. She's basically pointing out all these plot holes, much like the original <laughs> film. Like in, in the original film, when they talk about like, okay, it's big breasted woman goes upstairs instead of downstairs, which I think someone ran upstairs instead of downstairs in this movie. Oh, yeah, well, Sydney but, does. In the fake house, she runs upstairs to get away from Ghostface. Uh, yeah. In her defense, she knew the layout of her room and knew she could hide. With the door up against the door. Yeah. And then she saw that. the Creed poster and she didn't know what the fuck was going on. Yeah, well, then she's like, this is a bad dream. This this is not my beautiful house. She got Creed go and then she was like, ah, PTSD. <laughs> PTSD Creed. Look, I'm not trying to make light of PTSD. I know the damage the band Creed has done. And it's no joke. <laughs> Sarah is talking to Roman, not Roman. She is also complaining in that scene about how she enters from the uh, bathroom and is naked for no reason, which is true of the girlfriend in the first scene in this movie. She also complains about being a 35-year-old playing a 21-year-old, even though Jenny McCarthy was 27. Yeah. That joke's just all over the place. Right yeah. Right there. Well, and it's weird because I remember people like the, the audience for Scream, the teens that were watching Scream were like, oh, all these 35-year-olds playing us, blah. But now, like, looking at it as a 39 year old i'm like yes absolutely do not cast anybody under age because as established by this film and one of the plot points in it is that hollywood is predatory as fuck i mean it's still predatory against 35 year olds so there's that but anyway i just thought that was interesting how those concerns have flipped yeah uh so we we jump forward uh, as frequently happens in this movie and uh dale uh dewey and gale are meeting for breakfast dale weird ship name they're talking about the murders and how they were dating last time we saw them in the movies and they're not now and how that's ever going to work out. And we learn that Dewey has realized that whoever is this killer is probably somebody that's working on Stab 3 
because somebody was trying to get information on Sydney previously, and he managed to head them off and, and steal all the information from, you know, the Woodsboro Police Department before they got to it. I feel like this exposition could have been delivered in a more exciting way, but they had to work around Courtney Cox and David Arquette's brunch schedule. <laughs> This scene, I feel like, flies in the face of Dewey's characterization in the rest of the movie, which is he's extremely competent in this scene. And the rest of the movie, he is fucking Dudley Do Right levels of just goofy. He is so dumb in this movie. <laughs> like, I feel like there's a little bit of a consistency of his cup because he actually is. Uh, well, the physical level of competency. The new goofier tone just lends itself to like a new level of slapstick for Dewey. Like yeah. the scene where he takes the knife handle to the face and then just tumbles down the stairs. That was fucking yeah. amazing. That was like hilarious. That that's why I was like, okay, movie, you're okay. You know, yeah, like I, that scream three at its best, like when it's being the right levels of just a goofier take on Scream. Yeah, there were levels that it was basically scary movie. Like, it was such a self-parody. You know it's a less intense and less gory Scream because the worst that happens to Dewey in this movie is that he gets, like, punched in the mouth. That's right. And, like, lightly slashed. That's it. For Dewey, that's a fucking walk in the park in this franchise. Yeah, he didn't get almost killed again. Which is really straight is... Basically gone in this one. It's still there. It's there a little bit. But it is not. It is not on the extreme levels that we noted in Scream Two. He's got a whole a whole hitch in his giddy up in Scream Two. This movie's got enough shit going on to distract you. It doesn't need David Arquette's crazy ass limp acting like on top of it. Yeah, they're like too campy, too much camp. But the bodyguard does call him Dewdrop, which I think is fucking adorable. His last words before dying is just like tragically looking at Dewey's into Dewey's eyes just going do drop and then he just drops dead I didn't even hear that I was just, I was yeah, distracted this is where he introduced the bodyguard Stephen Stone played by the amazing Patrick not the Pokemon Robert. champion <laughs> no <laughs> not the Pokemon or, champion not the World Wrestling Federation champion but a, a different Stephen Stone who uh everything is delivered as Patrick Warburton as Patrick Warburton is known to do He's, he's basically the tick, but as a douchebag. So just imagine what that is, knowing Patrick Warburton. And there you go. You nailed it. Good job. Yep. You did it, listener. He did say you something really fucked up about... So he fucked up. Oh, so this movie is pretty big on, like, rules, I think, in terms of, like, when it, people die. And I think it's especially with Amelia... Uh, no, Angelina, Sydney's actor, and Stephen Stone in that he makes fun of Dewey for not having been able to save his sister in the first scream and then immediately gets attacked. Like, even Ghostface was like, whoa, dude, not cool. <laughs> I'm planning on killing you, but that was real fucking douchey. Like, Ghostface attacks him immediately after. Yeah. Ghostface almost attacks him on Dewey's behalf. Yeah. <laughs> Just... Like fucking Roman being in there and be like, oh shit, that was fucked up. All right, gotta accelerate this. I could just so easy be in Roman being like, Jesus, I know I'm a ma- I'm a killer, but I'm not an asshole. I mean, he is an asshole, but he is an asshole. Yeah, because he's he fucking mows right over Sarah when she's like, you know, this is really misogynist, and he's like, uh huh, okay, uh, let's review the lines. Can you review the lines? You're like, ah, it's Ghostface, but no, it's just him being it a misogynist. Him. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, it is him as Ghostface as him. It, 
that scene. As um, meta as the rest of the movie. Yeah. At this point, Ghostface is leaving pictures of young Marine Prescott at all the kills. It's not about killing people in the order that they die in the movie anymore. It's now about pictures of Maureen Prescott. Yes, the order that they are killed in the film will never be brought up ever again. And Ghostface calls Sydney on her uh, uh, on her I'm home sorry, we... somehow. I don't think we ever get a follow-up on exactly how he figured this stuff out. And I, I don't think that we learn how the actual like character that turns out to be the, the killer would have gotten this information. It just does. And so... She decides to come to Hollywood and join in on the fun. She's going to come be part of this movie instead of being part of her own independent movie about a woman that lives in the country and does trauma support. The swelling music that plays when Zinni reunites with like the characters. Oh, that is some crazy level, just like emotional schmaltz. There's a lot of orchestration in this movie for how campy this movie is because that comes back like the very dramatic music is there. And then we also get the return of Dewey's like theme, his like cowboy theme pops back up later on. They have like everything from the Western trumpets to the sounds of spurs and stuff in the music. He's the heroic lawman. Yeah. Steven Stone is extra douchey and makes, like we said, makes fun of Dewey for uh, letting his sister get killed and then is immediately stabbed and falls dead in front of everybody else. They're freaking out when the power goes out and then, then the thing starts coming in through the backs. I do want to say, again, phone lines don't need additional electricity, but a fax machine does. A fax machine fax machines plugged do. in. I, I was being ridiculous before. I do love the idea of Ghostface communicating through a fax. I love Dewey being smart enough to now on his third time around of being like, saying if he's waiting for us outside, he wants us to stay inside. Let's get the fuck out. And them having to drag Parker Posey away, who's just dying with anticipation to know what the last fax is. Right? Like, she's acting like it's like a show she's invested in and she needs to watch the last episode. Maybe yeah. she just wanted to really keep that fax machine because it was magically able to receive faxes, like, while the power is out. The thing that I have the hardest part buying in this scene is, like, when he's like, oh, I smell the gas and it's on the paper. It's like, how did the killer know? That in that moment, this would happen or be said, like, if this was some, like, jigsaw level thinking ahead of time stuff. It's also another place where the version of the movie we have doesn't make any sense. Because Emily Mortimer's character disappears right here and reappears later and theoretically is the one who's shutting off the pilot light or whatever so that the gas builds up. Because the other ghost face isn't around at this point and will show up down at the bottom of the hill later so like this only makes sense if she did it but then since they've gotten rid of that part of the plot it, it's again it look like the killer getting from one place to another it only makes sense if you know it's going to be tom in the house doing it because okay you see him smoking in all his scenes you can surmise that he has a lighter if it's dark but you have to know that in a group of people running out he's going to be the one that's like yes i will read the facts or no one has a flashlight what if Roman just grabbed it, then run outside, and then, uh, like, flicked on his lighter to read it? Uh, probably there were contingencies, like he had a match, or there was some sort of, there was a plan. So much bullshit is just being pulled out of a magic hat that, like, probably. Yeah, I mean, my my disbelief is suspended uh, by this film already, just because of how ridiculous it is, so. And again, this is a really fun movie, but one of the big joys of 1 and 2 is, after you learn the reveal, then having a rewatch where you go like, 
oh, this is where these characters were when all this was going on. This is the, like the clues they dropped, letting us know that this was them. And here, it just doesn't work. Like there's just no consistency or logic or sense you can make of it because just the script got written so hastily and then was just changed so much. Like it's Looney Tune logic for Ghostface to do everything that Ghostface does in this movie. Yeah, as we talked about, part of what we love about Ghostface, especially in the first two movies, is that he is not supernatural. He is a human who can be stabbed and knocked over and beat up and is frequently beat up. And that all the stuff he does that seems supernatural in the movies can be explained by the existence of you know, multiple killers um, mm-hmm. that have staged this. Which, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't make any sense in this movie because they don't have multiple killers in this movie because they've halfway taken out that plot line. I At this point, it's, like it's basically my favorite been. ghost base escape, too, because, like, they all end up at the bottom of the hill, except for Emily Mortimer's character, and then Ghostface shows up and tries to kill Gale, and Dewey shows up and shoots Ghostface. Ghostface rolls under the van and disappears. Yeah. Ghostface <laughs> leaves behind a note, and just, I, I assume that there's, like, a stump of wood underneath there, because he just ninja'd his way out of there. <laughs> straight up disappeared. So, like, this movie should have gone so much harder with this ghost face being some kind of unstoppable supernatural seeming thing and then once we learn it's roman the director who was in charge of this film we then get reveals on like the movie special effects trickery that went into this but supposedly impossible things Ghostface was doing during the film yeah. and i don't feel like the movie ever really does that yeah, that's why I was banking on that being the reveal is that it, this was a production, but that we never really touch on that. Yeah, yeah, the idea is there. It's just not filled out, unfortunately. Yeah, it's like as meta as this movie is, I, w- I wish it had gone even harder. Well, it's indecisive about how much it wants to be meta at times. Those are the, the main failing points of the film. You know, that's something that other Scream movies have dealt with. But the stuff that's there is ridiculous enough that it just leaves me to for- forgive the um the other weak points just because it's set up to be an imperfect movie that is a disaster in filming that makes no sense. Yeah, like that's the movie at its best. Like when it's being campy and cheesy is when it's good. When act three is in this horror movie like maven producers literal horror movie mansion like that's good yeah and why is this a horror movie ending because you're in a literal house of the horror movie dude and like it's Harvey like weinstein can we borrow your house <laughs> yeah shoot this finale is that that's like, not his house is it i don't think so okay because i'm sure i've seen that shit on zillow gone wild oh god ben i have I mean, a feel of does- parker posey moment from you uh, in this scene, when Gail punches her, and she's like, "My lawyer liked that." That's one of that my favorite lines. Amazing! Every line delivery Parker Posey has is incredible. She is at Ellen Eleven this whole film. I love her in Scream Three. I love yeah, this. This continues a trend where Gail gets punched in each movie. She gets punched in the first movie. She gets punched in the second movie. And then Gail punches fake Gail in this movie. Like, it's- Yeah. And someone mentioned this being like a Gail Dewey film with them as the protagonists. Like, take with that in mind, like Gail getting the Sydney moment of punching Gail in the face is like, I don't know. It just makes so much sense in this scenario. Uh, oh, I do love it. It's so meta. I love the interplay between the two of them that kind of starts here 
and we'll follow the two Gales throughout the rest of the movie of like Gale being like, no, we have to do this. And Parker Posey going, well, my Gale would do this. <laughs> Their dynamic was incredible. Like uh, I, I, I could not get enough of the Jennifer Gale duo. Yeah, they're the best part for like easily. So we have Kincaid demanding to know where Sydney is, and then Sydney just showing up out of the blue. I think the only time Sydney will leave the police station for the rest of the movie is she goes to the set and stumbles upon uh, Martha Meeks, Randy's yeah. little sister. The cameo delivery system. Yeah. Was there yeah. to deliver a VHS of Randy telling them what to expect in the trilogy. Anybody can die and the past is malleable. It's going to be changed in some way. Things are going to not be what we thought they were. But I was wondering, is he refers to Return of the Jedi and like the big reveal in the Return of the Jedi. What was the big reveal in the Return of the Jedi? Leia was Luke's sister. Okay, well, let's be she real. When you, when you think about the big twist reveal in the original trilogy of Star Wars, this just leads me to believe that Randy kind of sucks. I mean... Yeah. Well, I think the first good. two movies make that pretty clear. Yeah. This is maybe the ideal amount of Jamie Kennedy to have in a movie. <laughs> <laughs> Still can't get over how they're like, oh, she's Randy's sister. Can't you tell? No. That's fucked I, up. Yeah. They're, they're not. <laughs> this is my favorite Randy appearance. It blows my mind how much people online, like old school screen fans, are like, Randy was me. Like, I love Randy. I'm like, then no cares about work on yourself then <laughs> oh my god oh my god like on that and every archetype going forward is a hundred percent gayer and i'm here for that but i do want to say during this whole explanation about the rules of the trilogy and how that works they never say oh yeah and the third one is always like a real cheap cash grab with cameos in it and that would have been perfect god oh. nothing will ever top that level of accidental self-awareness like X-Men Apocalypse having a line where they walk out of Return of the Jedi and go like the third one's always the worst one it's like really X-Men Apocalypse <laughs> you want to do this? Martha Meeks is gone. We started putting together this stuff about Maureen Prescott because the publicity still they have done of Jennifer as Gail has the same background in it from the studio lot as one of the pictures that they, they're seeing of Maureen and Gail and fake Gail, Jennifer, go to investigate. This is where they meet Carrie Fisher playing not Carrie Fisher, but a woman who was also trying out for the part of Princess Leia, who didn't sleep with George Lucas, so didn't get the part. Carrie Fisher is wry and brilliant as always, even if far too briefly. We get a lot of background about Maureen Prescott having had a different name that she went under as an actress. And she was actually in several small horror movies that were all under the same producer who is currently producing Stab 3, uh, Milton. We've got ourselves a societal theme, y'all. Get ready for abuse in Hollywood in a movie. Uh, Meanwhile, Sydney is in the bathroom, the same bathroom that she was in in Scream 1, weirdly, but on the Hollywood lot. Did they recreate the bathroom? Is this a real bathroom? Wait, is this a real working toilet or did Sydney just poop in a prop toilet? (laughs) (laughs) Good question. Because that door leads nowhere. Maybe she just didn't care. 
Maybe she just wanted the shit on the set. Lindy's been through a lot. She can shit wherever she wants. Like these people are making millions, exploiting the most traumatic, horrific events of her life. Sydney is every justification of just being fuck everyone ever involved with this franchise. I really want more done, Sydney. But like Sydney's reaction here because she sees the like telltale black boots under the door, and instead of like trying to peek under or trying to figure out what's going on. She full on kicks the door open, scares the shit out of poor Angelina who's in there. Uh, grabbed a mask that she is, I guess, stealing from the set because now step three is not getting made. So she's never going to have another chance like this again. She wants some sort of memorabilia to have. It is clearly a, a reference to the fact that she's supposed to be the killer later on in this movie and, you know, was getting ready to pop out at her. But that's again, cut. So. This is then just a scene of a, a very sad girl who stole a uh, Again, a like, the scene where she's connecting to Sydney and talking about what, like, being there, it's like, there's something so creepy and unnerving about Angelina in this scene, and it's like, mm -hmm. fuck, like, this is why she should have been the killer. Agreed. Yeah, it's a good scene. Like, And I feel bad for her, too. Like, she's creepy, but... If you're like, okay, the movie's trying to make me think everyone could be the killer. I was like, all right, I'm here for you, Angelina. Yeah, and at this point, Sydney wanders into the set of her old house and is exploring the fake mocked-up version of her house where she now likes Creed instead of Indigo Girls or whatever it was in the first one. I think it was Indigo Girls because I kept thinking Annie DeFranco, but I don't think it was that level. That's right. a wild change. Indigo Girls <laughs> to Creed. Still fucking bonkers yeah that's fucked up that's that fucked is up. A... i'd be like this is revisionist and i'm gonna shit on this set as well <laughs> yeah so she gets uh, attacked by ghostface in her house and at one point is running away and discovers that the entire house is not actually there at one point she almost falls off of the, the sound stage and then uses that to her advantage hides and lets the you know ghostface run through the half open door and then pulls him off throws him on the lower floor Ghostface is still getting the better of her until, you know, she's screaming and doing everybody run in and there's no sign of anybody there. This is also the first scene where Ghostface is hiding under police blanket that's supposed to be covering her dead mom in this scene, I guess, that gets up and walks around and, and scares her that way. It doesn't I make a lot of sense. Yes, Creed poster is maybe supposed to be foreshadowing because Roman Ghostface put Creed on while he killed Cotton and his girlfriend. Yeah. Like, oh shit! We know Ghostface likes Creed. It's the Creed fandom. That's what gives Ghostface away. I am going to write an essay about this movie because of all the all this crazy <laughs> shit. I have to say, I going back to Emily's idea of like actors trying to make sydney think this is all happening like the mother train sequences i think that's such a good idea that was like a missed opportunity especially with this scene for sure i that love this scene with her on the set but the mother part is the one part that doesn't really work for me again i just love the, the idea of if it's going to be this level of movie and movie meta i want them to fully explore everything that comes with your villains being filmmakers yeah i mean the this idea is so good. Even in the beginning, in the first movie, fucking Skeet Ulrich is talking about how he's using corn syrup or cornstarch or whatever, not corn syrup, what they use for pig's blood and carry. Like it was this homage to filmmaking. So like this felt, that's why this movie is so, it just clicks for me because it is not just an homage to filmmaking, but it's also a critique on 
Hollywood bullshit. And the first movie was like horror movies. Am I right? The next movie was like horror movies again, I guess. Am I right? And then this one is like Hollywood. Am I right? From second one where they're like panning in over the Hollywood sign. And they're like Hollywood fucked up. And then they go as far to talk about the abuse that people deal with and they talk about misogyny and all this kind of stuff so you have like everything here to be a really great commentary it's just not quite there yeah uh gail and jennifer go to confront milton milton admits the about this stuff that went on with maureen at his parties and puts the blame back on maureen says like oh she didn't Nothing happened to her that she didn't invite. His excuse is literally, it was the 70s. Uh, we do get a pretty, another wonderful Parker Mosey moment of her just like pulling out of her ass, just like this whole theory of Milton being the killer. And then Gail gets the wonderful line, easy there, Geraldo. <laughs> she goes, you're obsessed with her and you're obsessed with her daughter. I love, that's such a good one. Obsessed with her daughter. Like she is so <laughs> intense. It's great. Parker Mosey. He is the gift that just keeps on giving in this movie. She deserved to live. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I hope that she did. I'm hoping that Scream 6 is like, Stu's back and somehow Parker Posey's back too. And now they're both ghost face. Just some Lillard and Posey crazy comedy murder. I was telling Ben, I think yesterday, if they ever do a final Scream movie, bring back the voice changer and just have every person who ever played Ghostface cameo and like, haunt all the victims who survived and i would be down for parker posey to come back and have lived and get harassed once more i would love that or even just like the voice changer used to play voices of all of the like people that sydney couldn't save and then it's yeah. very dramatic and sad and then you hear parker posey's voice and for a moment it's like man this is a very silly moment in this intense scene yeah if it were me, I feel like I would bring Parker Posey back as somebody who has become like a, a hardcore investigative detective type. She's just embraced this and kept going. Yeah. Okay. If they ever kill off Neil Weathers, they just have Jennifer come back in the sequel and just she'll fill the Gale Weathers role. And importantly, insist that everyone calls her Gale. Yep. Oh, God. Writers, get Gale. at us. It's like Let's get these ideas. Box. They're not good, but fucking, I don't know. Tell us what you think. We can collab into the Screamiverse combined ideas. Yes. Into the yes. No way home. No stab home. That's nothing. Is that anything? I don't think that's No scream home. Yeah. No way to scream. We're just putting, yeah, we're we're just putting words in other words. <laughs> that's how they are for the recap. Okay, so Sydney ends up back at the police station with Kincaid, uh, where she has decided that she lives for the rest of the movie. Um, <laughs> she's just going to sit there. Uh, she's going to have an intense dialogue with Kincaid, where they talk about horror movies, and they've both had bad lives, and Kincaid says his favorite horror movie is his own life, which if somebody said that to me in real life, I would laugh in their face. <laughs> it's a lot. And Kincaid leaves to go do Kincaid stuff, and Sydney just stays there well gail and dewey have uh, a fun adventure they get a call from sydney calling them to the mansion because they need them to be at the mansion for the final scene and of course it's not sydney it's voice changer mcgee they all show up at roman's birthday party at the mansion where the other actors are still there the ones who have survived to this point they just like hang I'm out amazed the other actors are there just to celebrate roman's birthday like the movie has been canceled people are dying if I'm those actors, I'm fucking all the way out of town for a while. 
Also, Roman's a director and he got this fucking fancy ass house and only four people are at his birthday party. The second Sydney shows up and it's not like a bunch of people, I'd be like, yeah, this is not, this is fucked. Like, this is the not. The thought of this like, movie hinges on us going, yeah, I believe Roman doesn't have any friends aside from the people he pays. Yeah. I mean, and they're at the house in Milton's, who I guess we're going to find out shortly is Roman's dad. It's never really discussed further in this movie. He could be Roman's dad. I guess any number of guys from this party could theoretically, genetically be Roman's dad. That is not really covered, whether uh, I guess Milton was one of the people who sexually abused Sydney's mother. Yeah, I'm going to say that it is Milton until we learn that it's not. And then Roman's real dad comes back as the villain of Scream 7. (laughs) <laughs> and it's also Lance Henriksen, but it's the Lance Henriksen that didn't sleep with the director of Near Dark. And it's like the not Lance Henriksen. But my brain just stopped working in the middle of this theory. I was speaking of which, though, I have to ask. Why the fuck does John Milton's office have a diving board? I don't know. Unknown. His whole house like, is full of movie props. John yeah. Milton said, I want a diving board on my office. A contractor fucking side hung his head and then added another zero to the invoice. I mean, I would. But seriously, though, like, he's like a big Hollywood guy and he has a diving board off of his, I don't know, sixth, seventh story office that's like got a panoramic view of Lala. Like, whose idea was that? Who was like, hey, you know what really communicates Hollywood sleaze and power? A diving board outside your office. Sydney is at the police station and everyone else is going to... Um, this very sad party. This very sad party at this very cool house full of cool props and lights that need their ballasts replaced. Milton's house, by the way, is the Paramore Estate, also known as the Canfield Moreno Estate which is in Silver Lake and is the same house that they used as part of Halloween H2O and also where Rose McGowan was married. Two? I don't know. Okay. The version just says where Rose McGowan had her wedding. So yeah, it is a real place on the outside. Presumably the inside is not what's actually in the house. Dewey and Gail show up and we start just having a series of uh, Looney Tunes murders. Roman seems to die while walking around in the basement by himself. He will be found in a coffin very close to Jennifer hiding behind a curtain. Gail will check his pulse and say that he is dead. And then he will show back up as the killer later. Nobody needed to feel his pulse and say that he was dead in this scene. They could have just been like, ah, and run away. The movie creates a hole for no reason. Yeah, run away. Like, scene is the same. And we're like, oh, he faked a knife and blood with movie magic. Easy peasy. But you can't just fake a no pulse. I don't think that's That was like a dummy. So that, so that again, like, could she I would have been good with that, but I needed like, I needed just one line explaining it, which there isn't. And it's like, why, why go out of your way to do this? And to me, it really hurts the whodunit because, you know, there's always room for tools like Billy Loomis being dead in the first, faking his death in the first one and then coming out like that works. That fit his character. It still fit within the realm of what was possible based on what was presented to us. This felt like the movie explicitly telling us we are telling you from a truthful, unbiased source. There is objective confirmation. He is dead. So when Roman is revealed as the killer, I don't feel like, whoa, I was tricked or this movie did a good job with it. 
I don't feel like I was tricked. I feel like I was lied to. Yeah. And those are different feelings. Yeah, that's that's not the who done it trick. That's the uh oh you fucked up. Yeah. Well, exactly. like, what was the point of him faking his death? Like he could have just disappeared and then we'd be like, "Oh, where is he?" It was just for the audience to trick us and lie to us and it's like it doesn't work then for me. I think it all could have worked if it's like if there had been more of like everything Billy Loomis did, I'm going to do bigger and better. What he did with a fucking camcorder and allowance money, I'm going to do with fucking Hollywood equipment and budgets. Right. I yeah. forgot Billy also faked his death. <laughs> so now I can't complain about it if Billy did it. Well, no, yeah. but again, it's like all we saw was Billy with a fake knife in him and blood everywhere where he then show takes the knife out showing it's a prop and explicitly is like look how i made this prop the movie explains why what we saw wasn't what we saw scream 3 does not explain why what we saw wasn't what we saw and that makes all the difference in the world from a whodunit perspective yeah and that's going to get even worse here because gail and jennifer run into angelina angelina freaks out she tells them that she banged Milton to get the part, or I guess banged Roman to get the part. No, she banged Milton. She banged Milton. Okay, yeah. she banged Milton and didn't bang Roman. You revealed uh, she had sex in the slasher movie, so y'all know what's got to happen next. But she, she gets killed in a way that looks super like it's not real and that she's not right? actually dead. And at this point, I had thought she was the killer anyway, so I was like, well, that's obviously like a setup. And reading back over stuff and finding out that that was the plan at one point is for her to be one of the killers i was like oh good i'm not just stupid <laughs> they just did this poorly yeah <laughs> so it will turn out that this super fake looking death is in fact a death nobody finds her body nobody finds her decapitated corpse somewhere so like i don't know they could throw a twist in a future movie that like she did fake her death and disappeared and you know she can show back up but uh, there's nothing in the end of this movie that would imply that. She gets pulled like yeah. off camera. And then it cuts to a different angle where we're looking down the stairs and she gets pulled like off the bottom of the stairs. And she's screen. looking up open eyed and looking so much like she's pretending to be dead with a, like a shock face. Yeah. Yeah. So she's dead, I guess. The ghost face attacks Dewey. Tyson tries to save him. Tyson gets stabbed and then... It's the rug pulled out from under him and lands on his neck and then gets oh, thrown out a window onto the pavement. Tyson landing on his neck is so brutal. Like, Tyson has the most brutal death. Like, we see him stabbed in the stomach. We see him land on his neck. We see him shoved through glass. We see him thrown off a balcony. Like, it's easily the most memorable and classic feeling scream death. So he's the only character of color in this movie. Yeah, yeah. it's fucked up. Yeah, That's it, why I feel like it's gratuitous. It's a good horror movie death, but yeah, it's fucked up. Yeah, why hit? Yeah. Fuck. What the fuck, movie? Exactly. Not even fucking... Roman gets killed like five times, and then he still gets back up until he is shot in the head, and we see the bullet go through and have like a fucking diagram of where the bullet goes in and comes out, and like they basically do the autopsy right there, and they're like, yep, dead. But well, then you always got to do for a ghost face. This death of Tyson reminds me a lot of the first Jurassic World. There's like the one poor woman who's supposed to be oh, minding the children in. who for some reason has an incredibly graphic death. It, it's Lena Luther from Supergirl, isn't it? And she just I has like, so. and isn't it that like 
she's just a nice character who doesn't do anything wrong and it's still just the most gratuitous death. <laughs> she's she's yeah. exasperated because she's assigned to take care of the kids and that's not her job. She's supposed to be working. That makes and sense. It's just sort of running around trying to follow them the whole time and then dies incredibly horribly. <laughs> For the fatal flaw of not being accepting of workplace sexism. Yeah, God. Maybe I shouldn't watch Jurassic World. I also haven't seen it. I've made it this far not having seen it. There's a really compelling shit in that film. Is it between Chris Pratt and a dinosaur? Yeah, I was going to say, is it a dinosaur? Chris Pratt, yeah. okay. blue dinosaur. Ooh. Yeah. It's his blue, blue blaster after love. Okay, I'll check it out. So, Tyson is dead. Very dead. The most dead. Yeah, Ghostface chases Jennifer around... And she ends up on the wrong side of a one-way mirror. And this time... It's John Milton's, like, bedroom pervert mirror. She dies behind the pervert mirror. I don't mean to kink shame, but in the case of the Weinstein-esque figure, I'm gonna go there. Oh, yeah, no, that's, like, with all of the contacts that we have, that's fucked up as fuck. Like, also because there's all these secret passages and stuff, so nobody really knows that that's going on, assumingly. Assumedly. Yeah, no, that looks like it's tailor-made for some secret fucked-up voyeur shit. Yeah, or, like, blackmailing people, which... Mm -hmm. But the two birds, one stone... Right? So Sorry for that terrible jingle. No, it was good. Don't ever... I will always apologize for my singing. It's not good. I mean, listen, just because things are not good doesn't mean that they're not great. Like, screen <laughs> three! Yeah! Right? So, in this moment, do you think Jennifer is killed by Ghostface, or does Dewey shoot her, or both? Killed by Ghostface. Okay. I'm really expecting there to be something about that, but she sort of falls through the mirror, and they don't really even bother to confirm that she's dead at this point. They just kind of leave her body there and continue on. Yeah, I just want to point out at this point with the mirrors... The, the whole glass situation from the previous movie, they've actually figured that out. Like, oh, you shoot the glass. And then also the fact that the mirrors completely obfuscate sound, but he does notice that they're moving. I, I just thought, oh, hey, they did pay attention to the fact that there was something that happened before. That's why Dewey survives, because as fucking dumb as he can be, he also learns. Dewey is the only character in this whole movie to be like, Hey, how do I know you're not Ghostface using the voice changer? Prove well, it. Yeah, and then he's also actually doing some detective work. I mean, he's not fucking Sherlock also, Holmes or whatever. Question. Based on where in the house they find the Ghostface gear, do we think Roman was hiding out just like getting dressed into the costume and then calling them up like as Sydney from like literally just a room away? Yeah. Or did he do it from like farther away and then just stash the gear there? Here is also stashed in a way that it is not like stuck in a jacket pocket or something. It is like on display in this closet. It feels like he wants them to find it, but then they never really say anything about that. He tries to grab Gail. Gail fights back. They fall down the stairs. This is where Gail literally gets the Sydney scene of like waking up and the unconscious ghost face still in robe and mask is like in her way so she can't get past him without potentially waking him up but they quickly undercut that scene you know the two of them are fighting again and dewey interrupts them and ghostface throws a knife up the stairs at him and it flips through the air and what is so doofy in this movie but is also incredibly fun from a like characters throwing knives in this working out standpoint the non-business end of the knife hits dewey in the forehead and he uh 
gets knocked unconscious and falls down the stairs. And then they are both tied up for Sydney to come find later. I do like we get this little game of Marcos Ebo where Gail is trying to be quiet and Ghostface is just mm-hmm. like, I'm semi-passed out and I'm just going to wildly flail my knife whatever <laughs> direction I hear sound. <laughs> Oh my, I'm just imagining like baby ghost face having a, a little night terror. So they're playing it less like he's unconscious and more like he has some sort of like Dungeons and Dragons temporary blindness effect on him. <laughs> Confusion. <laughs> now, if Dewey had died, like if the knife, you know, 50-50 chance that the knife was going to go in, would you have been mad if they killed Yeah, him? I would have been furious. Okay. I would have been fucking yeah, furious. Like, if Dewey died in this movie, like... I feel like I go into every movie knowing, like, fuck, this could be the movie they take out Dewey or Gale. Like, but if this was the end, like, if this was the end of the trilogy and there was no more. I think if they were going to kill Dewey, they would have to do it in a lot more of, like, a lot more fanfare. Like, he would have needed to take himself out or, like, take the ghost face out with him or something like that. Like, you know, that's... I think it was really true to Dewey. He would have gotten hit with the knife. The way he did, and then broken his neck falling down the stairs after. <laughs> yes. Okay. If it had been that, I would have been into it. But I don't know. I think some of the more bullshit elements of this whodunit and all like the ridiculousness of the reveal, I think is mitigated in this kind of sense of like, okay, well, it's Campion's Scooby, but at least it didn't do like lasting damage. Like, I'm not sure how I feel if it's like, shit, this is the ghost face that like takes out Dewey. Like, all these better villains can do it. And like, fucking this ding dong does it like if it's i don't know i want a better killer reveal for if and when dewey bites it oh yeah that's fair he he would need like a proper send-off yeah granted there is a sense where just like yeah and then the killer just fucking throw his knife and then dewey just fucking caught it in the face and then broke his neck on the stairs i'm like yeah that's how dewey would go (laughs) yeah but no like at this point there's just been too much time with dewey to not want to see him go with like a lot of fanfare yeah absolutely i feel like by this point any of the people who have survived this long into the series either have to be the killer in a movie or they have to die saving everybody else you know yeah i'll say this if we ever get patrick dempsey back i expect him dead like immediately caught in weary style (laughs) so in the original scream four that was supposed to happen but it doesn't happen so Ah. yeah he's not in scream four sadly no, he was too dreamy by then. Sydney shows up and is attempting to untie Dewey when she gets attacked. And Kincaid shows up, does the same thing cops do in every horror movie. Nothing. And, the movie uh, really wants you to think it's Kincaid for a hot second. Yeah, there's a yeah. lot of telegraph in there too. Yeah, they they telegraph it and then forget about him and then plug him back in in the movie because you know they need somebody. Sydney does a it's a fake out, discards one gun, and turns out she has another one hidden away as well. I do love Kincaid's explanation for why he's there is because it sounds like where an act three would be set. I mean, <laughs> yeah, this is the movie that we're watching. Yeah. Kincaid, if he appeared in more scenes and had more character, could have a very interesting, like, oh, he knows about movies thing, too. Because uh, they try to do that. They give him movie posters. But then, like, the one conversation that he has about movies is the fucking worst. I don't know. Though. I love the idea, though, of just this wacky police precinct that they're like, Hey, Kincaid likes movies. Give him all the movie crimes. <laughs> the celebrity crimes unit at the LAPD. I mean, that we know that that, is- that must exist somewhere off the books. Yeah. She got um, the file on Sean Penn. Steven Thagal's job. So Sydney finds Milton's secret theater room. Ghostface locks her inside. 
he reveals that he's Roman. And this is where things get real problematic for me is because we find out that Maureen was sexually assaulted by presumably Milton et al. at this party. And as a result, abandoned her son, Roman, left him behind here in Hollywood somewhere. He doesn't say whether he grew up in an orphanage or what happened. And then because she had been sexually assaulted, she decided to go home and sleep with everybody, which is why she was sleeping around with everybody in the prelude to Scream and during which time she slept with Billy's dad and Cotton Weary. During her time doing this, Roman was following her around and filming it. Roman, her son, was following her around and filming her uh, meeting up with uh, men at a hotel. Then pass this information off to Billy and Stu, who then kill Maureen, which is why he has in this movie claimed that he killed Maureen because he is indirectly responsible for her death because... While they are the killers of this horror movie, he is the director of this horror movie, uh, which is an analogy they don't do enough with, as That's Ben was a, saying. Yeah, I do have to say, him being like, I was the director of the killing. I'm like, That's some real Obi-Wan from a certain point of view kind of uh, cop-out <laughs> bullshit. But I will say, I like that him influencing Billy and Stu more than I like a much more direct retcon of like, he killed her and Billy just like took credit. Like, I love the twist in two where it's Billy's mother and it's like, oh, yeah, that was Billy's whole motivation was his parents splitting up and his mother leaving. So her coming back for vengeance like that totally makes sense based on what we already knew going into the movie. This twist relies on a whole bunch of stuff that only gets introduced into this movie. Yeah. And with Roman's a whole situation, like his whole exposition and everything, like the fact that he's her brother or whatever, like that's where when you were talking like, oh, yeah, Leia was Luke's sister. I was like, oh, yeah, I guess that's the same thing. But his whole motivation, like I didn't give a shit about. And I felt like I wasn't supposed to because Sid at this point is just like, OK, uh-huh. All right. Cool. And then she has this really great response, which is, you know, just take some fucking responsibility. Sid says, all of this shit is not what led you to kill. You killed because you decided to. So take some fucking responsibility. Considering the conversation that happened, like even around Columbine, where, you know, people talk about these kids and were they bullied and were they, you know, this or that. That's a bit different, of course, because they were kids and this is a little different situation. But the point being that all of these people are trying to blame media for violence. And in this case, it's all about media. It's about media being involved. And, and you know, this guy wants to be famous and he's pissed off because he was rejected by his mother, blah, 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 blah. And this is something that's also very Hollywood. When you have a Hollywood story about a killer, it's all about why do they do it? Who are they? What are they? It's the same thing in true crime where they're like, what is going on here? This is so weird and unreal and horrible. And Sid is just like cutting directly through the bullshit with this line where she says, no, there's no mystery here. You're killing people because you chose to. And I don't need to hear any story about it. I don't need to hear your excuses because that's what they are. I don't need to hear an exposition. I just need you to realize that you are killing and you are a murderer. And there's no fucking excuse for that, no matter how shitty the, your situation is. Considering how this movie is very non-committal about the sexism and the racism they're more like they do the simpsons sort of like well what can you do it's there about it where in this case there's the actual point which i feel is very compelling in this case about media 
influencing violence and people using media as an excuse, et cetera. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. No, I love it. And I, I wanted to bring up the Maureen Prescott thing here. Like, I think we all like that the movie addressed such a topic and went there back in the 2000s. But like, I don't know how I feel. So I'm again, I'm asking you guys your opinion on this too, in terms of how it handled like the trauma of Maureen Prescott and in turn how it affected her children. Because to me, the movie seems to really be like, oh, this trauma that she went through, she never got over it. And it turned her, not that I'm saying this is true or that I feel it, but it almost feels like the movie is saying, oh, like it turned her into a slut and she yeah. never got over that. Yeah, and, it's and then, not good. Right. And then good. in turn, I almost feel like the movie, especially with Sydney holding Rummett's hand, like, they have that moment, and to me, it, it seems like the movie is trying to make it seem like, oh, but she kind of understands it because he was also fucked up from their mother. And I'm like, the mother did nothing to Sydney, and it just seems like it's trying to imply that she did, and I don't like that. When we first got with Maureen Prescott, she was just like, a woman who cheated in the summer. I was like, didn't really need to be more than that. But then, again, you add the extra trauma backstory on it, and it's like, you know, we talked about how in Tatan, it's like, well, the movie doesn't explicitly say that her injury led to her being a serial killer who has sex with cars, but it feels like impossible to escape that interpretation because you don't give us anything else. Yeah. It's kind of similar in this movie where, but it's almost even more blatant because with Roman, you're directly tying the two together almost. It's like, I was created from this terrible thing that happened to her. And then I revealed to the world this this bad thing she was doing. And I don't know, even just that level of connection. I'm like, man, what the fuck are you trying to say here? There's a part of me that I think like it is important that a movie address this kind of thing, right? Maybe not this movie, especially because it is easily the campiest of these movies. It is over the top. I mean, Jay and Silent Bob appear in this movie having this movie the important message about sexual assault and people being taken advantage of by Hollywood doesn't seem like the best line to draw, especially when you start talking about like, oh yeah, the reason that Maureen slept around with these other characters before Scream 1 is because she was sexually assaulted here. Uh, that's it. Yeah, it gets really yucky, it's, especially it, once you start describing blame yeah. to her. It's never something that's directly disputed by Sydney either. And also, to some extent, this movie suffers from the problem that I have with every story about Thomas and Martha Wayne or Peter Parker's <laughs> parents. It's like, I don't care. I don't care about their parents. I want a story about this character. And like, what's important about them is that they took what they had and built themselves into this, this thing, this, you know, Batman or Spider-Man or whatever. It's much better if Spider-Man's parents are just people like they're just people and you know they were just doing their thing and then he is just a guy who gets bit by a spider and then gets powers and does extraordinary things in this case like it doesn't add anything to sydney's character to give her mother who was already dead at the beginning of the first movie a tragic backstory in the middle of this otherwise goofy movie easily the goofiest of these movies yeah like, like again that it's literally a movie produced by harvey weinstein is just 
I can appreciate what the movie was trying to do and being like, oh, her mother never got over her trauma. So we're going to make Sydney's journey about getting over her personal trauma by the end of the film. I get that. I appreciate it. But when you look at Sydney's mother as a character, which again, it's so weird because she's not even in these movies. Her agency was taken away even before the first film. She was murdered. We find out she was sleeping around and like, to me, that makes her interesting because she's not perfect. Before this movie, the only thing we really knew about her was like, okay, so she was sleeping with other people outside of her marriage. That's the one thing that she had agency over, it seemed like. Yeah. And this movie took that away from her as well and was like, no, she was only doing that because she was fucked up by men in her youth. And it's like, okay, I guess she's just not a character. She's yep. just a plot device. That's a, that's a fantastic point about her sexuality you know that she can't just be a promiscuous woman who is just trying to you know let maureen be a slut 2022 please yeah, yeah. Let you're, you're no. so right about it taking away her agency be a slut. yeah mm-hmm. in a positive way yeah. and doris being a slut be a slut just communicate about it make sure everyone's on board that's it yeah, yeah. consensual sluttiness 2022 all right so we get our big final confrontation let's wrap Let's wrap up this fun little recap we've had. Yeah, so in, instead of this, uh, we have Jake from Scandal and uh, and uh, fucking Felicity. Well, good old Noel Crane from Felicity uh, is the bad oh, guy. I recognized him as um, fucking Elliot's temporary love interest from Scrubs. Yeah, he's, he's a great temporary love interest. Scott. <laughs> um, <laughs> whatever gets you work in Hollywood, it, it's a cutthroat business. Nah, 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 nah. He brings out Milton. Sydney calls him on his bullshit. Uh, they have some fighting. The other two main characters try very hard to get into this room and are very bad at it. Cop man shows up and does does what horror movie cops always do and fails to do anything except maybe distract the killer for a moment. Sydney stabs Ruben with an ice pick, which apparently Nev Campbell missed the pad she was supposed to hit him with and actually uh, managed to stab this poor man oh, <laughs> nice scout bully reaction is authentic <laughs> oh, oh poor scott foley yeah there's a series of turnabouts in which eventually she ends up taking him down and then he gets back up and has to be shot several times in his bulletproof vest before they finally shoot him in the head we also get sydney having the turnabout of getting shot she gets shot and it gets caught by her bulletproof vest and when somebody gets shot at point blank range in a bulletproof vest, they don't just get back up. Also, bulletproof vests work the way they work in the Scream universe is that they make you completely immune from an infinite amount of bullets that are fired at the vest. <laughs> I mean, yes. Like, I mean, they have magical voice boxes and teleporting Scream guys. Like, okay. But still, the, the bulletproof vests are like, just remember, they're bulky. Yeah, she stole hers from the actual police department. It is the relative size of a traffic vest. And yeah, they just stop bullets dead. They don't actually affect you at all. And you get shot at point point blank range. I read an interview with Scott Foley where he said he was not told that he was going to be the killer until two weeks into production. I mean, they got to keep everyone on their toes, right? I mean, all these scripts are leaking to the internet on fax machines. Ben and TJ, I know you guys are, are are younger than Emily and I. I don't know, Emily, do you remember the, like, ain't it cool news days of the internet where, like, scripts leaking to the internet was, like, a big thing people were worried about? 
Oh, yeah. Well, I remember the script to Generations was leaked. And so there was a big thing about that. And I remember my friends and I were like talking about it because my friend had gone on because she she had Netscape. And then she's like, I can't, I just need to tell you, I just need to tell you. And we had a very sentimental conversation about data for the the generation script. And after that, I was like, the internet, eh? And I, yeah, I do remember that. Yeah, it's, it's a prevalent both in and around this movie. The people are very worried about scripts getting leaked and there's several versions of scripts and things like that. Nowadays, everyone knows that the best way to keep things from leaking is just, oh, Tom, don't tell Tom Holland and you'll be fine. So Dewey, Dewey proposes to Gail in the only way that you could really propose to Gail with a copy of her own book, which he has hollowed out and put the ring inside of. Yeah, I thought you hated my book. Yeah, that's why I defaced it. <laughs> Ask you to marry me. They both accept the fact that this will probably end horribly, but decide to get married anyway. And they move out to the country with Sydney and I guess Kincaid who's there too. I guess they all live together in a big house. I don't know how this works. Because you doubt it, it's house. Yeah, they're having a sleepover. Yeah, a sleepover. Actually, if I was fit, I wouldn't be into that. I feel like, now you guys just, I'm going to. You don't want to sleep with your dead best friend's older brother? I mean, one of my favorite relationships in this movie that I think throughout the series they do a good job with is the surrogate brother-sister bond between Dewey and Sydney. Yeah, Sydney's outfit in this scene, by the way, is fucking fly like this that outfit is so cute on her also i'm glad the dog's okay she's going for jogs in the countryside with her dog and just leaving fences open and leaving doors open i guess she's just not into keeping her house air conditioned because it's it's not just that she's not locking everything she's just fucking leaving doors open behind her Uh, probably off the grid you know going fully solar in that in that place there's probably snakes coming into that house behind her like She's gonna walk I feel like the movie is just very, snakes. very heavily like, this is a metaphor. Did you get this as a metaphor? She's leaving the door open. I was like, I got it. Thank you. Movie was so proud of itself. <laughs> the movie is about this far from, from the police officer coming up and walking into the door and then back out and then back in and then back in. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so that's the end of the movie. It's over. And then, uh, we get a re, a re-recording of Red Right Hand over the credits. And uh, then Creed. And then Creed. And Brett, what, right. like, Brett cackled at my bitter beer face at Creed. All right, y'all. So, is Scream 3 feminist? Uh, I, I, you tried. I think you have the positive of you once again have a very wide variety of fun entertaining well-written women characters sydney is still like the best final girl in the business gail is still very much like courtney cox being a force of nature we, we talked a lot about like every moment of parker posey is solid gold at the same time you do also have everything we talked about with weinstein and taking away maureen's agency and yeah, the movie tries, but it's a few steps forward and too many steps back. I totally agree because as cool as Sydney and Gail and all these characters are and, and Sydney's see, the whole speech about responsibility and their agency and everything, the slut shaming and the, the very, very half-assed attempt at addressing the abuse going on in Hollywood because at the time, I'm pretty sure that the context of that was these girls are privileged because they can sleep with execs and get jobs that way. 
that everybody's sleeping with somebody to have gotten this job on stab. But then we move on to this like much more serious context of abuse. Yeah. So there's there's no real clear message there. And it's yeah, like Ben said, it takes a few steps forward, but its missteps are fatal to the conveyance of that message if they were trying to make one. And I mean, just to kind of curtail this into the next point, it does have a nice wide variety of white women. This movie, there are no women of color in this movie. There is one one black guy who they really make a point of murdering in just the most uh, horrible and gruesome way of anybody in this movie. Despite the fact that he he seems generally like a nice guy. Yeah. Yeah. This is definitely a step back from Scream 2. Yes. For sure. I don't feel like there's a whole bunch to say about class in this movie. Everybody is sort of remarkably the same class. There's not even the strations. I feel like there should be in a group like what we see from this. They're having fun like with the whole like LA glitz and glamour and hypocrisy of it. But like. You know, we're not, we're not talking BoJack Horseman exploration of Hollywood here. Like there's fun, campy meta bits, but you're seeing a more shallow exploration of a city you've seen. You've probably seen better explored in a lot of other things. Yeah. Speaking of class, like we know Sydney hates the stab movies, but do you think her little secluded house is funded by the stab income? Because like, I don't think she's earning that house on her crisis hotline salary. Okay. Absolutely not. She may hate those movies, but I think she's cashing those checks. And you know what? Good for her. Fuck it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Get your money, girl. Absolutely. Hell yeah. Get paid. If they're going to exploit you and you have no say, at least get the money from it. What about all the queer representation in this movie, guys? (laughs) Jennifer's really (laughs) into getting inside Gail's head. Yeah. And Sid is, or not Sid, new Sid. Um, Angelina is very obsessed with Sydney. I mean, there's a, there's some there's some stuff there that could get. There's straws that we can reach for, but that's about it. Yeah, it's, it's nowhere near as gay as our two boys from the original film. No. I think probably least gay of the three. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. That... The second one at least had like a don't ask, don't tell joke. And oh, yeah. Like, oh, some security guard, my bodyguard could be gay. But like this had nothing. Like yeah. this is a pretty straight movie. I feel the distinct lack of Kevin Williamson in this aspect. I feel like yeah, yeah. It feels like a scream movie is not a scream movie without Kevin Williamson. And guys, I I feel like we've kind of talked to death the mental illness, mental health part of this because it's bad. Yeah, their mm-hmm. portrayal of PTSD and what it does or doesn't mean is is not good. It's no good. This movie could have something interesting to say about that stuff, but it should not be in the same movie as Jay and Silent Bob. I mean, Dogma tried, but Jay and Silent Bob are not really suited to discuss feminism or pretty much anything other than we. I mean, they managed to talk about religion, but drinking beers, drinking beers, 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 smoking, uh, smoking baddies, smoking bloods, who's the slugs? They smoke the bloods. Smoking once and rolling. So, not Jay and Silent Bob, but Scream 3. Do we think it was worth seeing? Do we recommend people check it out? Like yeah. I said, it's Scream movies or pizza. Even the bad ones are good. If you like Scream, I would say. The love, the familiarity of Dewey and Gale, I think is a big carrier for this movie. So if you like that, you know. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm going to go with Ben. I mean, this is the bell peppers and anchovies of pizza, but it's still pizza. You can pick off the anchovies. 
I do want to write like an essay about this movie because there's so many things that it accidentally does that are kind of brilliant. Um, if you're going to say you wanted to write a fix it fanfic. I mean, I could also do that. Wouldn't it would just be like a couple things like get rid of all of this. Right. And then, you know, have Angelina be the killer and then it's fixed. I think it is brilliant. It's just also messy, which the other films aren't. So it, you know, has that problem. But I think there's brilliance in it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's one of the reasons I would want to write about it. Because I'm like, this is, there's some shit here that connects. Right. Do it. I will read what if you write. Dream 3 is the Alien 3 of Screams. You know? Yeah. All right. Well, with that in mind, what would you recommend people check out? I haven't seen it yet, but I hear really good things about the Chucky TV series. And it's so good. So (laughs) it looks like it combines the levels of horror and camp that this movie's got going on. So again, on TJ's recommendation, I'm going to recommend the Chucky TV show. If you like Parker Posey, and if you like movies that are about media, and that are meta if you like movies that kind of call out the bullshit in media and in this case the music industry josie and the pussycats is a bonkers movie that's actually really funny it's not at all horror unless you consider the existential horror of the uh the music industry especially in the early 2000s parker posey is kind of the same character except she's like a, a super villain in this movie which is fucking fantastic and uh alan cummings is in it and a bunch of other people whose names I can't remember whose names I should remember because we've talked about them before but yeah Josie and the Pussycats I think actually would be a really great chaser for this movie yeah so every time I come on this show I always stress about what I'm gonna recommend at the end and I was really struggling ahead of time for this one but as we were talking and just thinking like what something that kind of deals with theatricality and feminism and mental health issues and i i have to bring up black swan i've only seen it a few times a long long time ago but i remember really liking it and it has natalie portman so we did an episode on that one where we did you i totally missed that one yeah yeah i have to rewatch it and listen do i mean there's certain there is feminism in there there's some some things here and there but um it's definitely gay shit okay so i i don't have a real like recommendation that's scream adjacent but i recently had a one of those moments where i was going through hbo max and just looking at stuff and uh tried out something that turned out to be just a fantastic show it is short it's nine episodes it's just the first season of it so far it's a canadian series called sort of s-o-r-t space o-f it's a really interesting series it's kind of a comedy but a lot of the comedy comes from uh weird awkward emotional places uh, the main character, Sabi, is a gender-fluid, non-binary, Pakistani-Canadian character who has uh, taken on this job to be a nanny for this uh, more affluent family neighborhood and is sort of like dealing with a lot of their own life and trying to figure out where they're going while at the same time this family, uh, who's like the mom she's really close with, the mom gets in an accident and ends up in a coma. Sabi is sort of like trying to help the kids and the dad get through this whole you know trauma of, of their mom being in a coma and trying to figure out what's going on with their lives so it's both like very emotional and also very funny the main character is played by Bilal Beg uh Sabi is really good and is an actual character who as opposed to a lot of movies that are about 
people in LGBT stories actually has like a community of queer people around them mm. created by, uh, Bilal and, uh, Fab Filippo. And it's just like funny and hopeful and interesting. And like, there's this whole subplot about Sabi coming out to their mother and the mother is, is less worried about the gender stuff than she is upset about Sabi being uh, a nanny for white people. This is very like specific cultural context of like the mom being upset about that is, is funny in its own way. But it's, it's one of those shows that like I tried it out with the intention of like, oh, I'll give it one episode and see what happens. And then like the next day, Alicia and I had watched the entire series. So it's definitely worth checking out. It's on HBO. Uh, it's like nine half hour episodes, sort of. All right. Is that Hi. everybody? So, uh, TJ, can you let people know uh, where they can find you and also uh, your podcast online if they haven't already listened to it? Yes, you can find me on Twitter at TroyFin2. I talk about all things book-related, pretty Batman-related at this point, <laughs> but also everything gay culture and I try to make a joke here and there and talk about fandom. So, say hi. And, of course, my Batman podcast, Gotham Outsiders, the Batman Book Club, you can find on Twitter at Gotham Outsiders, and you'll hear friend of this pod, Chris, who is my co-host, uh, where we talk about Batman and just make it a lot gayer as we do with everything. Bless. And uh, as for the rest of us, you can find Emily at Megamoth on Twitter and at Mega underscore Moth on Instagram and at Megamoth.net. Ben is on Twitter at Ben the Con and on their website at BenConComics.com where you can pick up all of their books, including the brand new Immortals Phoenix Rising graphic novel from Great Beginnings and the Glad Award nominated Renegade Rule graphic novel. Uh, and finally, for me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jrome58. That's J-R-O-M-E-5-8. And my website is jeremywhitley.com, where you can check out everything that I write. And of course, the podcast is on Patreon at Progressively Horrified, on our website at progressivelyhorrified.transistor.fm, and on Twitter at proghorrorpod where we would love to hear from you. Come comment, tell us what you think of uh, the podcast, what you think of the movies. Give us recommendations if there's things you want us to check out. Speaking of loving to hear from you, we would love it if wherever you're listening to this, you review the podcast, five-star reviews, help us reach more listeners, help us get recommended to more people. And thank you so much again for TJ for joining us. Some way, Someday we're going to get all of these Scream movies. We're going to get them yes. next out. Oh, well, thank you for having me as always. And I am so ready to talk about Scream 4 with you all sooner than later. Oh, yeah. We'll it, get there. We got to do it soon because we, we, we got to have you on for all the Screams. I think yeah. you all will love it. Yeah, I'm I'm excited to see 4 and 5 now that 5 is... Uh, it, Paramount keeps trying to tell me to watch it, so... It's oh, yeah, good. If you like 4, I think you will like 5. I, I can speak to 4 being good. Ooh, okay. Ooh, <laughs> thank you as always to Emily and Ben for joining me and thank you all of you for listening and uh, until next time stay horrified Progressively Horrified is created by Jeremy Whitley and produced by me, Alicia Whitley this episode features Jeremy, Ben Emily and special guest TJ Fennessy all opinions expressed by the commentators are solely their own and do not represent the intent or opinion of the filmmakers nor do they represent the employers, institutions or publishers of the commentators our theme music is Epic Darkness by Mario Cole 06 and was provided royalty-free from Pixabay. Thanks for listening.